Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, beginning in verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? says the Lord. Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knee. As one whom his mother comforts, so shall I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants." and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. The New Testament reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, 
What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you yet, would love to do so later or during the lunch. Some of, uh, some of us may remember 9-11 for my generation. That was the sort of, you know, major catastrophic or major event that defines the sort of things that follow. Uh, you know, a lot of gen- different generations have a different defining event after which then it feels like everything kind of clouds is clouded by them I don't know what it would be for the younger generation maybe we live in a a post-truth era now so you can sort of post something on social media many many times and it will become truth I don't know what the what this generation has Uh, 
sometimes we have that in our own individual lives or families. You know, maybe it's a, the birth of a child or a death of a spouse or a divorce, something like that, where everything before and everything after is defined by that one event. It's like now everything changes accordingly. Well, that is something of what Jesus is trying to prepare them for. That his death and resurrection and ascension is going to be the hinge on which the whole world turns. He is going to be arrested and horribly flogged and beaten and then killed. But he is trying to get them ready for that. Which is pretty amazing, knowing he knows what is to come, all of this pain and suffering. And yet he's concerned about his disciples, and he's even speaking with us in mind about what is going to happen when he seems to leave. What is going to happen? What is really going on when, as he tells them, you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone? I'm going to try to speak to you so that you will not fall away so that you will not stumble over my cross and my death. So we are meant to see in this passage, I know it was a long passage, chapter 16. It's a great idea if you have a chance. Read the passage ahead of time, because then it will just help a lot in in understanding it when you then can hear it read again and preached on. Uh, But it's a long passage, but he is trying to actually prepare us for what should we expect life to be like now. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, we do praise you for this day. We praise you for the opportunity to worship you, to come into your presence that you have even promised to be with us. So we pray now that you would speak, that your word would speak to your people, to your glory. And that we would draw closer to you and to one another. That we would live that life that you have made us for in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of this uh, long uh, so-called farewell discourse. This long talk that Jesus is giving uh, in the, the, this sort of intimate setting of his disciples. And we've been there since chapter 14, and it continues to be a similar theme, where Jesus is telling them, yes, I am going away, but yes, you will be in me. Yes, I seem to be departing, I am going to the Father, but I will come to you, the Spirit will come to you, I and the Father will make my home with you and dwell among you also. So we saw that in chapter 14. We saw that he had this image of the vine and the branches, where we are the branches. Jesus is the vine. Even after he is ascended to heaven, we are still called to be connected to him. We are made for communion with Jesus. That's what everyone is made for, communion with God. And he's trying to get them to understand that. They don't, and that's okay. 
Maybe you don't yet, but that's okay. He's trying to give them a heads up, as it were. If you notice in, verse, in the first verse, he says, I'm telling you these things, I've said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So that means that whatever he is about to say to us will compensate for excommunication and death. What he is trying to get across is meant to get us ready and basically sustain us even in the midst of suffering and death. So we should ask, is this really good enough for that? Is it really that big of a deal what he's trying to tell us that it could compensate for such intense persecution and isolation and suffering and pain and death? I want you to hold that question as we go along. Because if it seems like what he's promising is not that great, then it probably means we're missing something. Does that make sense? Because he's telling us something catastrophic is about to happen. And you will be tempted to say, no, I'm out of here. This is not for me. But if we stick with it and try to understand what is really going on, then maybe it will actually compensate for the sorrow that we experience in the world. All right, so what is this that he's trying to communicate to us? A lot of this having to do with what is the Holy Spirit up to now? And the first thing is this teaching. The Spirit has teaching to do primarily about Jesus. He wants to tell them that there are going to be more things you need to learn that I can't tell you now. You can't understand them, bear them now, but after the ascension, you will. And the Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. He is going to glorify Jesus in his teaching. He's going to help us understand, in fact, what has happened. This is largely talking about the New Testament, largely talking about even John's own gospel, which was, of course, written after uh, these events, to say that what is happening here cannot be discerned by eyes of the world, cannot be discerned by our own flesh, our own reason. We need the Holy Spirit to see rightly. And he tells us specifically what we need the Holy Spirit for, what he's going to convict the world of, if you will. Three things, real quickly. He says sin, righteousness, and judgment. But if you notice, all three of these are centered around Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to convict us about denying Jesus. Look how incredible and horrific our sin is in denying Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to see that on the cross it is actually our sin that is putting him there. We need the Holy Spirit to see, he says he's going to teach us about righteousness. Because I am going to the Father, 
which seems maybe a little unclear. I think that has to do with Jesus being vindicated. He is resurrected and raised, ascends to the Father to say, yes, the work that he has done is complete. This work, this stamp of vindication of righteousness upon the work of Jesus. We need the Spirit to see that. And then we need the Spirit to, to learn about judgment, which he explains then right there where he says, the ruler of this world is cast out. This is a, this is a pretty wild statement. He, we caught it in chapter 12. And this is where it starts getting pretty amazing, why we really need the Spirit, because this is so utterly counterintuitive. On the cross... Jesus is saying that the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, the spiritual powers at work in the world, are cast out. Think about that for a second. What do you know about a crucifixion or a cross? The most obvious thing the world knows is that the person on the cross is worthless. Right? Shameful. They have lost. Rome has won. They are without power. So if anything, what is happening on the cross is that the person on the cross is being judged. But... If what is actually happening is that the person on the cross is actually taking our judgment upon himself, then he is casting out the power of Satan. He is saying now there is no longer a way for Satan to judge or condemn you because I have swallowed that judgment. Do you see why you need the Holy Spirit to believe that? Because that is the silliest thing. And it was the silliest, foolish thing to the Greeks and the Jews of the time. I, I mean, we could come, try to come up with comparisons. I don't know, maybe someone on death row who ends up getting a lethal, I don't, something like that, but even that doesn't quite compare because there's the gruesomeness of the cross and the brutal nature of Rome and the empire. But the point here is that it is the job of the Holy Spirit to teach us this, to convict us of this. And that's what I want to uh, clarify. Why is it important that it, we need the Holy Spirit to understand this? It's because this teaching does not come from the world. You can be the most extreme cynic and not trust anything in this world, and that's still not an argument against Jesus. Because the world could never make this up. The world could never figure this out. Do you see how it's connected to the fact that salvation is a gift? That has to be given to us. It cannot come 
from us. It cannot come from us as if it's our own idea, our own achievement. It has to come down from above by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to sort of open our eyes to see this glorious truth that actually there is salvation from outside the world to bring grace and truth to you. I'm reminded of a story I heard from a a missionary in East Africa, and he was ministering to some women who um, basically had, had... lived the, the, this horrific, horrific life. They, they had lost all self-esteem because they had been uh, sold into sex slavery, were, were raised in just absolute extreme poverty. And they had no sense of worth. So their assumption was, and the world around them had told them from birth, you matter nothing. And it wasn't until they actually started to grasp that salvation is a gift, not dependent on them, that they could actually receive it. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that need to be said about why they were in that situation. But it gets to the point of realizing that it If it doesn't come from the world, that's what makes it so trustworthy. So much of a gift from God that we can ask for. The Holy Spirit must enlighten our eyes and our minds to see Jesus rightly. And so you have in the Gospel of John over and over and over... This all-consuming focus on Jesus. And even in these passages about the Holy Spirit, it goes back again and again to saying the Holy Spirit's job is to teach you about Jesus. It's to glorify Jesus. It's to remind you of what Jesus has said. It's going to take what is mine, as Jesus says, and give it to you. That may make some of us uncomfortable, this incredible focus on Jesus. I remember around the time of my conversion, it was just hard to say the name of Jesus out loud. It just seemed there was something uncomfortable to it, something awkward about it. Maybe you've felt that yourself. Obviously, there have been many horrible things done in the name of Jesus, and so maybe that's part of it. But if we're talking about the real Jesus... The Jesus who turns enemies into friends to die for each other, who turns our hearts into ones that want to love and serve and have compassion, then we can start to see the real Jesus. And so this promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise of this teaching centered around Jesus. If we don't see it, I would simply encourage you to ask. Ask for faith. Ask for insight. What else does he talk about in this passage? The Holy Spirit brings this incredible enlightenment to us. He also brings 
us joy. He says he is going to turn our sorrow into joy because we see Jesus. I'm convinced that this is talking about the movement when he's talking about sorrow and joy and he uses the example of of, uh, the woman in labor. He's talking about the movement from the cross to the resurrection. And so when he says the world will rejoice, he's talking about the cross. Yeah, it seems like the world is working as they want it to work and Justice is, being, is prevailing and the powerful are in charge. And so it seems like uh, the world can rejoice. That, what, that is what happens. But your, joy, your sorrow will turn into joy. Did you catch this one amazing phrase? Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That happens literally in chapter 20. The disciples see the resurrected Jesus, and it's word for word we read, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So that literally happens when they see that. The larger context of what we're talking about is, of course, beyond just those days that he was resurrected on earth, but applies to the times when the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, we can now still see Jesus. He says, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed. Think about that. The relationship that we can now have with God the Father is the same sort of relationship that Jesus has has with him. Our relationship to God has now so fundamentally changed. This is the same thing that Paul says when he says, you now are co-heirs with Christ. You have the same inheritance that Jesus has. What? You can relate. Remember, this is one of the things that is scandalizing the religious leaders, the way that Jesus calls God Father. The way that he can say he is working just as the Father is working. They think that is blasphemy worthy of death. The Father of glory and the creator of all things now loves you. Cares for you. Knows you. This is why what he's telling us can compensate for suffering And death, this is why he can say, your hearts will rejoice and no one can take that joy from you. Do you have that sort of joy? Do you? I don't, I was convicted this week. I've lost sight of this in many ways. Something I noticed uh, in some of the first Christians I met their joy that they had, there was a sort of lightness because you're not wedded to the world, you're not bound to it, and you're not weighed down to the world. So there's this sort of lightness to a Christian, a lightness with conviction. It's not a lightness where you're just sort of floating and lost and you're just really chill. It's a lightness because you're not wedded to the world. 
combined with this kind of conviction. Because you know. You know who your father is. Which is why we can have all of these stories of saints in church history, maybe mentors. You have Christians that you look up to who have this sort of unstoppable joy. It should be so characteristic of the Christian life. It so so dominates, I think, the Christian life and so much of the New Testament. Leslie Newbegin, the uh, famous theologian and missionary from the last century, can describe mission as a kind of explosion of joy. He says this, the news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. We have been freed from the burdens of The world freed from our sin and death, freed from worry about our success. And so Paul can say over and over and over, rejoice, rejoice again. I say rejoice. I'm not sure we expect it to be like this. Do we pray for joy? Sometimes in the very act of prayer, God will grant you joy. Verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is also one sort of clue that he's talking about now. He's not talking about heaven or the new heavens, new earth, because we're not going to need to know how to pray then. It's going to be obvious. But now we can ask and receive that your joy may be full. If it's a promise from Jesus, it's something that we can count on, can be assured of. But notice what he does not say. He does not say, pray that your happiness may be full, that your bank account may be full, that your garage may be full, or your comfort may be full. That's not the prayer, right? Remember how we started, this is all going to compensate for excommunication and death, suffering and pain. So this is not saying that a Christian should be happy-go-lucky, easy and expect comfort. In fact, The context tells us it's the opposite. You should expect suffering, but this is why I'm telling you these things. You should expect to find hatred from the last passage. You should expect to find opposition. Because if you're following Jesus, what happened to Jesus? And yet, no one can take their joy away. It seems like part of the the Christian life is learning how to die joyfully. Learning how to suffer joyfully. Not learning how to get away from suffering. 
Jesus never promises us that, but how to suffer joyfully. We're still experiencing sorrow. We're still experiencing the cross in our lives, dying to ourselves because we are one step behind Jesus, right? His human flesh has been raised in heaven. And so we are one step behind that. And yet we are given this promise that we can suffer joyfully. Remember, if it's a promise, not only can you count on it, but it's going to be given to you. So I'm struck, like this may feel like it's just, I'm giving you another load because, well, I'm not this joyful, so great, I'm a terrible Christian, thanks a lot. That's not the point. The point is to realize just how good the promises from Jesus are. Ask, and it will be given to you. So just keep asking. Remember who you are asking. And he can give you joy. Joy can color everything. We can put on joy-colored glasses, if you will. Because we can see Jesus with the eyes of faith. The cross does become Good Friday, right? We experience it as Good Friday, even as we lament the sorrow that is still at work in our lives. I would encourage you to ask. If you don't know what it's like, if it seems unattainable, just keep asking. Ask others what it's like. Why do you feel so much joy? What do you do? How do you grow in it? So he promises this sort of counterintuitive teaching and this joy that is unstoppable, inconquerable. And then he comes towards the end and he promises us peace. So towards the end, they think they believe, they think they understand. Okay, now we understand. You're going to the Father. We get it. Jesus says, no, you don't. Sorry. You will be scattered. You will scatter. That's what they do, right? When he gets arrested, he's being on trial, they continue to scatter. It looks like it's the end. But Jesus is trying to tell them, even though it looks like the end, it's actually the beginning. This is actually the beginning of your whole new life looks like the end because he is killing sin and death. And that's the beginning of new life. Verse 33, the money verse, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's sit in that verse for a second. First, take heart, Maybe an older way to say it. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Be comforted. I have overcome the world. If he's overcome the world and we should take comfort in that, that means we don't find comfort in the world. Right? How many ways do we still expect and seek comfort in the world? We were just sang that song, Yet Not I, and, and talking about how or, or peace, the peace song. I was struck by this peace that we are asking God to have. And if we are seeking to find peace in Jesus, it's not peace 
in the world or of the world. That's what he's overcome. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. This is John 16, though. How can he say that? He hasn't died yet. He speaks in this past tense because what he is going to do is so certain. Sometimes the prophets do this, too. It's like the prophetic past. It's, it's, they're obviously talking about the future, but they speak as if it's already happened because what? Because of who God is. If God has said it, it will come true. It will happen. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. The night of his betrayal. He's about to get arrested. That's pretty wild. And that word overcome, uh, that root, the root word there is Nike. Anybody wearing Nikes? Remember, Nike just means victory. So if you're wearing Nikes, that can point you to Jesus. I know, maybe I shouldn't say that. There's lots of negative things about Nike too. But you can sing, maybe a better image, you can sing the Queen song, We Are the champions. That points us to the victory that Jesus has won. The world threw everything at him. It was so incredibly obvious to everyone on the hill at Calvary that he had lost. And that means he has swallowed their power so that we can have Peace. We have peace in the world, sorry, in me, in Jesus, as we live in the world. The world, what does that mean for us? It means the world no longer has to have a hold on us. It means that we probably will feel like we don't fit very well in the world because we don't have peace in it. We have peace in Jesus. You can't have both. We try to have both. That's probably a big problem for a lot of us. We try to have peace in the world and peace in Jesus. We can't have both. The world should feel strange to us because we're following a master who was crucified. You see the similar language in 1 John by faith. You can go back and read it by faith. In 1 John 4, we have overcome the world. What Jesus has done is so utterly groundbreaking and, and fantastic and glorious that sin and death and even the ruler of this world no longer can have power over us. Which is what also he means by peace. Remember what the Bible means by peace. Don't import uh, this isn't Zen peace. This isn't like Eastern peace where you're not bothered by anything or something like that. Peace as opposed to what? War. The opposite of peace is war. So if we have peace with God, it means we are restored to him. It means that we are on the way to the cosmic restoration. Earth Day was yesterday, right? The shalom, the peace of the Bible is restoration with the whole world, natural world included. That's what he means by peace. 
if we have peace with God, our relationship with God is now secure. We no longer have to fight him. And he no longer is going to fight us. Why would you want to be of the world? Ask yourself that. What more do you want that Jesus has not given you? He's promised you his presence, this teaching that the world cannot undo, this joy that cannot be taken away, and peace that is world overcoming. Why do we still chase after the rat race? Why are we still tempted to want the world and what the world can give us? What Jesus has is so far superior. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would do just as you have told us in Jesus. We know that we often are not at peace, that we stumble, that we are cynical, that we do not rejoice. May your power infuse this church, that we would be ones who are in love with you, that we would find our life in you, that we would trust your teaching, that your spirit would lead us into your truth, and that we would know we can rejoice and have comfort in you. May the peace of Christ be mighty and powerful in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.